Let me invite you to turn in your copy of the word uh, to a chapter that if you would read it when you have to read it in your uh, daily Bible studies, your quiet times, I, I, hope you, I hope you read through it. I hope you uh, are able to read the Bible. Uh, but when you come to this chapter, it's probably not one you think really highly of. It's probably not one you get much out of. It's a list of names and not really good names. It's not a list of names that you kind of think about or you ponder on. Uh, and it's funny because this is also, if it's tough for you, it's tough for me. It's a hard chapter to preach on. Um, if you look at the early church, I have some, some, some works of the early church theologians, Augustine and all those guys. Uh, they don't ever mention this. They didn't even touch this with a, with a 10-foot pole. So uh, what are we to do? What are we to do? I think we're, we're here uh, <clears throat> because we believe that every part of God's word is profitable. There's no part of God's word that's unprofitable. Some parts are just a little more challenging. You got to dig a little deeper. So we're going to do that this morning. Let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 36. Uh, we've had Isaac die. That's the last thing we heard. Isaac died, and every time a, a father of the faith dies in the book of Genesis, you then get his kids' genealogies. This is the biggest one up to this point. Whole chapter on Esau. So let's come and read. Let's come and read. We begin in verse 1. These are the words of Moses. These are the words of our God. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. Let me remind you, particularly here, to pay careful attention because it is a challenge. Pay careful attention to the reading of God's word uh, and be blessed. We find that these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibia, and the Hivite, and Basimah, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Adah bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimath bore Ruel, and Aholibamah bore Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings cannot support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau, he is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, Ruel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz, Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Vera, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs, the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs, Nahath, Zerash, Amah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the chiefs, Uash, Yalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibamah the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. 
These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Now, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishan, Azer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Himam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Abal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ayah, and Anah. He is the Anah who found the well in the wilderness as he pastured the, do- the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the chiefs of Anah, Dishon and Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Dishon, Himdon, Eshban, Ithran, and Keran. These are the sons of Ever, Bilhan, Zaavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bala, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Din-Habah. Bala died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samlah of Masreketh reigned in his place. Samlah died, and Shaul of Rechabah on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau. According to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Oholibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Timon, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray now. Let's pray very hard that he would bless the edification and preaching of this word, its application. <clears throat> father, we need your help. We need your assistance. We pray that you would help us to see in these words uh, your glory, the beauty of your gospel, and the greatness of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned already, maybe you can tell now you're on the other side of reading it. Uh, seemingly a challenging text. Um, the name of our cat is in here, Zara. But uh, I don't think that's why the Lord gave us this, uh, this text. Instead, you'll find in your outline, I think there are three things that the Lord has for us uh, if we are to understand and take away anything from this text. I mean, there's a lot here, actually. That's about what you might see. Um, it fills, it's filled with what might seem like boring material. But the first thing we get is basically that God blesses Esau. You look here in the first uh, the first eight verses, we find that God blesses Esau. You'll see that Esau is connected from the very get-go, the first verse of the chapter, the last verse of the chapter, and several verses in between identify Esau with a country. Esau is Edom. We hear that several times. In fact, in verse 8, the ESV is not quite right. Esau, he the Hebrew adds the he to make it really emphatic. Esau, he is Edom. In case you can't get the picture, 
Esau becomes connected with a nation. Who does that sound like? Does it sound like Jacob? Jacob connected with Israel. Esau connected with Edom. Now, what does Edom mean? We've encountered it before, actually. It means red. Esau is red. Imagine if you had a country called Redland. We have a country called Greenland, I suppose. It's sort of similar. A country called Redland. Why is Esau connected with a red country? That's because of what he sold. He sold his birthright for some red, red stuff to Jacob. He sold away his blessing that God had bestowed upon him. He was a child of the covenant. He was the first child. He beat Jacob out. He won by seconds the contest to get out of the womb first. He is the blessed child. And yet, what's interesting here is that even though he rejected the blessing of promise, even though he spurned it, even though he sold it for some red, red stuff, even though he came to church and he hated the church stuff, he hated Jesus, he didn't want any of that. What's fascinating is that God nonetheless blesses him. Now, let me give you just a little hint here on how this whole chapter is structured. You have three pairs. There are three pairs of genealogies. It's sons, then chiefs. Sons of Esau, chiefs of Esau. That's the first pair. Second pair, this uh, local group called the Horites. You have their sons, verse 20. Then you have their kings, their sons and their chiefs. Right? So you have sons of Esau, chiefs of Esau, some of these people in the land, their chiefs in the last pair, beginning in verse 31. You have kings of Esau and then the chiefs of Esau. So the point is simply that there's a long list of names. And this long list of names tells you something. It tells you that God blesses Esau richly. God blesses Esau richly. In fact, Esau, as the older brother compared to Jacob, Esau actually gets stuff first. Look at verse 31. We're told these are the kings. These are Esau's kings. These are Edom's kings. These are the kings who reigned before any king reigned over the Israelites. The point is that Esau, the older brother, he gets the toys first. He gets kings first. He, he gets blessed. He gets blessed significantly. He intermarries with these local people, the Horites. He becomes kind of what we might call today a modern-day sheik. He becomes a modern-day leader. He becomes a powerful king. And these long list of kings tell us that God blesses the black sheep of the covenant. God blesses the fake Christians. There's a lesson. There's one lesson that you need to learn. It's that God blesses fake Christians. God blesses people who come to church. And the gospel goes in here and out the other. He blesses them mightily. In fact, these are kings. If you, if you look down, we'll, we'll get the details in a few seconds. But if you look down to verse 31 all the way through verse 39, these are kings that reign all the way into the period of Saul and David. These are the kings that reign for centuries. They last and they endure. What we have here is the future history of Edom. You know, the guy in verse 39, Balhanan, we're told that he reigns at the same time as King David. And his son, Hadar, Look at 1 Kings 11 sometime, not right now, later on. And you'll find that he is a trouble to Israel during King Solomon's reign. The point is simply that Esau is blessed. Esau, though, what happens? 
Look here at verse 6. Esau takes his family, his wives, all the property he has, all the livestock he has. He goes away from his brother Jacob. Jacob and Esau split. Why do they split? Verse, verse 7. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. Is that familiar to you? You've been with us. It should be very familiar to you. This is a replay of what happened with Abraham and Lot. God had blessed both Abraham and Lot. He blessed them so much. But their stuff didn't fit all together. They had too much stuff. They were too rich. So what did they do? Abraham allows Lot to choose the good land. There's one difference, though, here. There's one difference. Esau, Lot stayed in the promised land. Esau moves away from the promised land. Lot stayed in the promised land. Maybe one reason why he's called faithful down the road. But Esau doesn't. He moves out of the promised land. It's one more sign that Esau hates God. He rejects God's promise. Though he was raised in a godly family, though he was raised as a child of the covenant, he rejects God. He hates everything to do with God. And that's why really the first lesson here. <clears throat> because God promised to make Abraham a source of blessing, because God promised to make Abraham a source of nations, God blesses the bad kids. Esau has a boatload of kids. He has a boatload of grandkids. In fact, if you count the wives he has, how many wives does he have here? He has three wives. How many did Jacob have? Jacob just had two. Esau wins. If... if, if not to speak lightly of it, but if, if it's a competition, Esau is more blessed. In fact, there are other lists in the book of Genesis that, that signal maybe he even had four or five. The number's not important. The important thing is Esau has more. Esau has more. It seems like at the very beginning, Esau is the best one. And that leads us to a really important point for your life, friends. Esau is always played off against Jacob. You can't, you got to see these two in parallel. They're always contrasted. Esau, the unbelieving child of the covenant. Jacob, the believing child, often a failure, often weak, often looking like he's living in poverty, less blessed outwardly. That leads us to a very basic principle that you need to know. It's a basic principle of the Christian faith. Earthly blessings do not equal heavenly goodness. Earthly blessings do not equal heavenly goodness. Esau has more wives. Esau gets kings first. Esau has more than Jacob. Jacob just has Leah and Rachel. Esau looks better. It's the way the psalmist, it's the way, it's the way, it's the way King David writes in Psalm 17, verse 14. The men of this world whose portion is, their, is this life. The men of this world whose portion is this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. They have so much goodness. God was kind to someone who hated him. That's the picture of Esau. I suppose if you're not a Christian today or if you've just been in church and, you know, it's kind of going in one ear and out the other ear. Are you looking at your prosperity are you looking to your prosperity? Are you looking at your kids and grandkids? Is that what you're looking to? Are you looking to the success that God's given to you? Are you looking to God himself and saying, you've done this for me. You've blessed me. And for Christians, right? For you, dear Christian, what are we to take away from this? Just initially, the fact that God blesses, God blesses fake Christians. It should be a reminder to you to not be pessimistic. Not be too pessimistic when failure strikes. Not be too depressed when tragedy strikes. Esau looked good. Esau had success. Esau got kings. Esau, 
But those earthly joys were of zero heavenly value. They were of zero ultimate value. He looked like he had it all, but he never really did. Don't assume that because somebody's successful in life and they say they know about Jesus, that they actually know Jesus. Just because you know your catechism, boys and girls, does not mean you know the Jesus you talk about. Esau heard all about God. He grew up in a family where they had family worship. They, they, they knew God, but he was dull to his voice. The point is, as Matthew Henry writes, there's honor that comes from God that is worth so much more than a title or a name. There's honor that comes from God that's worth so much more than a degree or a career. If you're a Christian, do you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? It's signed by the Spirit, and therefore it cannot be taken away. It doesn't matter if they get kings first. It doesn't matter if they get the car first, the house first. It doesn't matter if they get the kids first. It doesn't matter if they have all these things. It doesn't matter if people look snazzy on the outside, if on the inside their hearts are rotten. So, Christian, you are to take comfort from this. It's what King David does, right? Psalm 17, 14, the men of this world look so good. And then the very next verse, Psalm 17, 15, what does he ask for? He looks at the prosperity of self-centered people, and he says, as for me, here's what I get. As for me, I shall see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He says, the men of this life, Esau, they're satisfied with their kids. They're satisfied with, that's all they have. But I'm satisfied with you. I'm satisfied with you. What do you look to, Christian? You are to look to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You are to see his smile in scripture. You are to hear his charming voice. You're in his family. And that, really, that means that it doesn't, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day how awesome your family is or how dysfunctional it is, how well-adjusted your kids are or how maladjusted your kids are. Because God promise, God's promise works. It began to work late in Jacob's life, but the effect remained for eternity. God's promise worked. It started late. Jacob was a late bloomer. Maybe some of y'all are late bloomers in life as Christians. God's promise started late, but it worked forever. And yet, if you're somebody who hates Jesus, if you persist like Esau in spurning the promise, if you sell it and sell it and sell it over and over again, if you're raised in the church and you know the words, you know the lingo, you can talk the talk, and you have the good life for a while. But notice where Esau gets his, lot, gets his wives from. Who does he marry? Who does he choose to marry? Verse 2, he took his wives from the Canaanites. Who are the Canaanites? We saw them two chapters ago with, with Dinah. They're the kind of people who grab women and defile them. They're the kind of atrocity people that we've seen in the book of Genesis over and over again. Esau marries them. And, and more to the point, verse 3, he chooses to, to marry Ishmael's daughter. He chooses to align himself with the other wicked guy, Isaac and Ishmael. Wicked guy number one. Esau said, oh, I like that. That guy's looking good. He's prosperous. I like the way he talks about God. Kind of like an, an assistant. I like the way he thinks of Jesus Christ. You know, somebody who's kind of a, 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 an add-on to your life. He marries Ishmael's daughter. Birds of a feather do indeed flock together. To quote again Matthew Henry, evil's triumph may be quick, but it's short. Soon ripe as soon rotten. But the products of the promise of God, though they are slow, are sure and lasting. 
lasting joys are found in thine alone. Do you know that? That's the first lesson we see here, that, that, that God blesses bad Christians, blesses fake Christians, blesses those who hate him. But second, we learn here that there's more than just common blessing here, more than God giving external benefits of the covenant. There's a warning here. There's a warning that Esau and his line are, are, are going to be tempting. They're going to be tempting. The point of the, 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 this chapter is here for a reason. This chapter is here for Israel, for the Israelites to read. They would read this chapter. And they would say, they're meant to say, this is a warning. It's a big red light, a big stop sign on the highway of, 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 the, of the pilgrimage of the Christian. It's a big red light that says, Edom is a path you don't want to go down. And Edom is a path you could very easily go down. That's why throughout the Bible, you have weird instances where Esau and Edom kind of pop up out of nowhere. You know that Esau is called ruddy. He's called red-cheeked. The only other guy in the Bible to be called ruddy. You know? King David. David's the only other guy in the Bible who's called ruddy. That's interesting. Remember the story of King David? He comes to the house of a man named Nabal. Nabal is Laban spelled backwards. He comes with how many men? 400 men. David comes with 400 guys. Now, if you've been with us for a bit, that should remind you that Esau was coming to Jacob with 400 guys. And it was a little scary because that's the number of guys you could use to kill somebody, take their stuff. Do you recall who saves Nabal's life? It's his wife, Abigail. She is uh, seen as very clever, like Jacob. What does she do? Like Jacob, she sends gifts ahead to kind of mollify King David. The point is that David is on the edge there of transforming into Esau. He's on the edge of becoming like Esau. He's a child of the promise. He has a ruddy face. He sends 400 guys. He's, he's on the verge of looking like Esau. And then you look at the kings that reign. Look down at verse 37. You look at the kings that reign in Esau's line. You have this guy, Shaul of Rehoboth. Does that sound familiar, that name? Take out the H, what do you have? It's very similar in the, in the actual original languages. A lot like Saul. Saul and Shaul. In fact, Shaul rules at the same time as Saul. And when Israel wants a king, quote, just like the nations, what king do they choose? They choose a guy who sounds like the nations, who looks like the nations. They end up with a king who's almost got the name of their twin nation. These are twin nations. These are two parallel paths down Scripture. The path of the, 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 the covenant child who rejects God and the path of the covenant child who accepts God, who, who keeps the promises. And to add insult to injury, in the last chapter, chapter 35, we had the birth of a son. There was a birth of a promised son. Remember who, who was born last, last, last week, last chapter? To Rachel. Rachel dies in childbirth. She has Benjamin. Benjamin, the, the beloved son. Benjamin, the son, the strong son of, of the right hand. Benjamin. And Jacob was told by God that kings will come from his line. And so when Israel's looking to choose a king, they pick a guy from Benjamin's tribe. And they pick a guy. Well, did you notice that there, in this whole chapter, there's only one story. 
In this whole chapter, there's only one verse that has anything that's fun, at least from a, from a surface level glance. Only one, one line. I hope you caught it. Verse 24. There's this weird story about this guy, Anna. It's the only, it's not even a story, it's like a, a line. And it's actually a little bit of a disputed line, but the, the Hebrew is, at least is clear enough to tell us he is the Anna who found water. It may be hot, maybe cold, some sort of water. He found water in the desert. That's usually a good thing. As he pastured the donkeys of Zibi and his father. Why is this here? I mean, surely you want to answer, why is the weird story about some donkeys of his dad, his dad's donkeys, and some water that he finds? Why is that in here? It's not a throwaway line. Remember the next time we find a story about donkeys and water and kings? We meet a guy named Saul. He's looking for his dad's donkeys. He finds them at a well of water. And it's while he's at that well of water that, that he's, he's told that Israel has, has anointed him, that, that they've chosen him as king. You see, the point, friends, is, is simply this. <clears throat> he is set up with this temptation. As you rule, are you going to be like the Edomites? Are you going to be like this guy, Anna, who had, had to find his father's donkeys, who had, who had to find water at the well? Are you going to be like your twin brothers? At every point, this is the question that comes up. And what happens to Saul? Saul, unlike David, becomes like Esau. He despises his birthright. He despises. He tries to get it back. He tries to get back being king. He can't get back being king. He weeps when Samuel comes to him and says, you have lost God's blessing. You can't get it back. Just like Esau, when he finds it out, he weeps. And to top it all off, what causes Saul to lose the kingship? What's one of the key reasons he loses the throne? Samuel tells him it's his failure to conquer fully the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? Who cares? Aha, verse 16. Look here. Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. The chiefs of the sons of Esau, Amalek. Who's Amalek? Amalek's the father of the Amalekites. The Amalekites, the people who wanted to destroy Israel as they came out of the wilderness. Haman, down the road, is Agagite, an Amalekite, basically, in the story of Esther. And Saul loses the kingship after he tried to find donkeys and some water. What happened to Saul? He gets tempted too much. He gives in. He becomes like Esau. He becomes an Edomite. He becomes someone who looks at the Amalekites and says, ooh, I don't, I don't want to kill. I don't want to follow God's word. I don't want to follow God's word. He becomes tempted. What's the point of all this comparison? I mean, you see it through all, through all, all of Scripture. King Herod is an Edomite. King Herod, the one who tries to kill all the babies. He's, a, he's from this line. On and on and on in the Bible. Edom and Israel. Esau and Jacob. They're always paired together. Why? Because God's trying to hit you over the head and saying, look, one of the most challenging temptations that you and I face is the temptation to mistake your older brother Esau for your older brother Jesus. It's the temptation to mistake the counterfeit for the similarity, for the real deal. Esau is as close to Jacob as you can get. He's a twin. You notice that, right? 
it starts off in the Bible with the patriarch of Abraham and his nephew. It's an uncle and a nephew. That's, that's a close, but not too close. Then you get Ishmael and Isaac, older brother by a few years, brothers, but older. And finally, what do you get here? You get twin brothers, as close as you can get. That's why, friends, one of the major themes of the book of Revelation is not the end times. One of the major themes of the book of Revelation is that Satan creates counterfeits. Satan creates a counterfeit church, a counterfeit trinity, a counterfeit death, a counterfeit resurrection. He creates a counterfeit of everything, a counterfeit gospel. He has counterfeit miracles. He has a counterfeit mark, the mark of the beast compared to the seal of the spirit. Mark you can wipe off, a seal lasts forever. And the question that that book gives you is simply a question the whole Bible gives you. Can you discern the real McCoy from the counterfeit? Satan's not an idiot. He knows that if he makes it look very close, you might mistake it. If he makes it look very subtle, you might mistake it. That's why, friends, as we come even today to celebrate the Reformation, there were plenty of Christians before Martin Luther. There were plenty of Christians who believed the gospel. But there were also plenty of Christians and plenty of churches that promoted a false gospel that mixed in works with grace. This is why, friends, Joel Osteen is happy to pack people into what he calls a church. And he can pray to someone he calls Jesus. But the gospel he gives has little to do with the Son of God and much to do with me, myself, and I. That's why, friends, you've got to realize that, that this is another one of those atheist chapters in the Bible. This is an atheist chapter. It's a godless chapter. This is another one of those places where God's not mentioned. In fact, look at the very last verse. Verse 43. We find the names of Ethos chiefs and we're told, according to the dwelling places in the land of their possession. When that phrase, the land of their possession, is used in Scripture, there's often something added on to it, which God had given them. You read in Joshua or Judges, you read in the wilderness wanderings about Israel entering, each tribe gets their own land, their own, their own part of the promised land, and there always is that phrase added on, according to which God had given them. It's not here. Because God didn't give it to Esau. God didn't promise it to Esau. He just took it. He just looked and he grabbed. What's the purpose of all this, friends? What's the danger of Esau? The danger of Esau is that you're tempted to color outside the covenant lines. You're tempted to color outside the lines of the covenant. Esau had the blessings of the covenant. He had the family. He had the promise given to him. He had all of these things. Even though he was raised in a dysfunctional home, they were still faithful, dysfunctional Christians. But he spurned them. So the question is, boys and girls, men and women, how are you using the benefits of the covenant? How are you using what you're getting from Jesus Christ? Are you trying to color outside the lines of the promise like Esau does? Are you being tempted to look to prosperity over godliness? But there's even a deeper message in this, I think. There's not just blessing, not just a message of temptation, but there's, there's a message here in the boredom. This is a boring chapter. Is that fair to say? I mean, you, don't, you don't say, oh, when I die, I want to my tombstone. I don't think you really say, uh, people don't quote this. They don't memorize this when they first teach their kids about memorizing scripture. It's not the 23rd Psalm. But I think we actually miss out on much of the beauty of the chapter because we don't read. We don't read on. 
you should read the very next couple of verses. This chapter is meant to be read with what goes behind after it. It's meant to be compared. You know the activity that we did as kids? Yeah, I, I did it always in the highlight magazines that I got. I think they still have highlight magazines somewhere. You know the activity you find the newspapers do? You have two pictures or something. There's five differences between them, and you're told spot the differences. Right? Look at what's different in this picture compared to this picture. That's the title of, of the sermon. This chapter is going to be irrelevant to you if you never compare it to what goes after. Esau is always meant to be compared with Jacob. This is a dull chapter. It's a godless chapter. It's a bunch of names and a bunch of kings, and we can make some connections down the road, but there's way more than that. You're supposed to compare it with what goes after. What goes after? Flip the page. Chapter 37. Let me read the first two verses. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, if you just stopped there, if you had a blank breath of the Bible and you were kind of fill in what would follow, you would think it'd be a lot like chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau. And you would try to fill in all the names. You try to make a whole genealogy, a huge list of all the sons of Jacob. And you could do a good job of it because there's a lot, you know, uh, in the rest. If you were having to fill in this next chapter, if you read the story, you'd make it a dull, boring genealogy. But that's not what we have, is it? How does God tell you the genealogy of Jacob? The story of Joseph. The story that every Sunday school kid knows. The story of Joseph. The beloved son of the father. Not a list of names. It's the story of Joseph, the beloved son of the father, betrayed by his brothers, enslaved, taken to Egypt, taken down to Egypt, tempted by the pleasures of Pharaoh tempted by Potiphar's wife, refuses the temptation, buried in the depths of the dungeon, basically dead in a hell pit. But he's raised out of that pit of death into new life. You see, friends, this chapter only works if you read it with the what follows. And it shows you the difference between living, like a, between living out of the gospel and living out of anything else. Living out of the gospel of free grace and life out of anything else. Do you realize you have this choice this morning? You can, you can be like Esau and you'll be a wallflower in God's kingdom. You can be like Esau and you'll be boring. This is a boring chapter. It's all about Esau. It's a dull chapter because it's just a list of names of Esau's family. It's nothing. It's a boring chapter. Do you understand, friends, that evil is boring? The reason why this is a dull chapter, at least in part, is because it shows us that if you live apart from Jesus Christ, you will be ultimately a bore, a bore and a bore at the heavenly party. When I was a child, this may not hit with anybody, but I'll, I'll give it as an illustration anyway. When I was a child, I uh, watched the Batman cartoons. Already many of you are looking for the exit. But anyway, I, I saw the Batman cartoons, and there was one villain that, that particularly stood out to me, not the Joker. It was this guy named Temple Fugit. He was a mild-mannered clerk. He was always obsessed with his watch, of being on time. And one day he had to be at court, and the judge was like, hey, you know, just take a lunch break. We're going to stop for lunch, come back in an hour. But you know what? You just need to relax, he told this guy. And I was like, oh, I guess I need to relax. He takes his watch off, and he misses the court date. 
He goes into a fit. He goes, he's totally consumed with anger. Because the most important thing in his life was to follow his schedule down to the second. It was all he cared about. And he misses. He's five minutes late. And he becomes the clock king. And it's an epic duel. You can watch it. The point, friends, simply is that that's the best evil has to offer. Obsession about a schedule. That's the best evil has to offer. The ticks and talks of this American life. If the only thing your eye looks to is yourself and this horizontal world, you're going to be a dullard because you're going to be talking about yourself. Now, if you want a high class reference, I'll give you a high culture one. The German philosopher Hannah Arendt, famous philosopher, she interviewed the Nazi concentration camp war criminal Eichmann back in the 60s. And she said what shocked her the most is how banal he was, how boring he was. He was a file clerk, the guy who, who perpetrated so much of the Holocaust. The monster, he was so boring and dull. And friends, that's a lesson that what, what evil does to you, it makes you boring. Do you realize how countercultural that is to the popular view of Christianity? The popular view of Christianity is it's boring, it's dull. Right here we see that's not at all the truth. What is Christianity? It's a story. What is Christianity? If you're a Christian, you know you've been saved from radical sin, from radical death from radical destruction by radical grace. And that means every day becomes extremely exciting. That means every conversation you have with somebody, as Lewis put it, you're you're never just talking to a a boring person. You're never just talking to somebody who lists their genealogy. You're talking to someone who will either be a monster in hell or a miracle in heaven. You're talking to a soul. You're talking to someone who's worth it, made in God's image and likeness. Therefore, Your conversation on social media, your conversation at the lunch table should never be a boring conversation. You shouldn't be happy just to say, what's the weather like? How are the Braves doing? How's that nice sunroom you got? How was your vacation? That should not satisfy you. And moreover, when you fail, Jacob fails, David fails. You see, when when Esau fails, he, he hides from God. When Jacob fails... He's found out by God and restored by God. Esau doesn't want restoration. But see, the life of a Christian, even when you fail, is never boring. Because you're always in the presence of a sovereign God who loves you and who seeks you. You don't, you don't have a boring life. So friends, don't ever fall for the lie that Christianity is boring. But I the last thing I'd say here is that it's not just a boring thing, being an Esau. Being Esau isn't just boring. It's also insufficient. It's also insufficient. Esau never quite gets there. Look at the very end. Look at this last verse 40. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau. I won't make you count them. I counted them already. How many chiefs does Esau have? 11. There's 11. It's a list repeated twice, once again in Chronicles. The names aren't really important. There are 11 of them. Why 11? I mean, there were plenty more kings you could have choose from. Why did God choose 11 to tell us about? It's not a Bible code. It's not a secret number. But you're supposed to compare Esau and Jacob. Esau has 11 clans, 11 tribes, 11 kings at his best. What does Jacob have? 12. 12 tribes, 12 sons. Revelation connects us with the 12 apostles. 24 elders before the throne. The point is that Esau, at its best, can only turn the dial up to 11. 
He can only get to 11, not 12. He can never reach the perfection of what God has to offer. He comes oh so close. In his own strength, he cannot obtain the righteous perfection required by the law. Like an asymptote, he never gets to zero. He never gets to the limit. And friends, this is why we celebrate the Reformation today. Because it recovered the theology of grace, of your inability to get there. At your best, we come up short. Now, I got the okay from from my wife to tell you the story, so don't worry about that. But yesterday, if she was making the s'mores for trunk or treat, and she had a nice round number made up, all ready in the basket. She had them arranged in sets of 10, nice and easy and all perfect. She carries them, and what happens? One falls. Crushed. Ruined. So what does she have? So close to perfect. So close to perfect. And friends, that's perhaps the illustration that shows us how Esau gets. He's raised in the church. He's raised in a godly home. So close to perfect. You can get so close. The counterfeit looks so close. You can get so close to perfect. And yet never quite obtain it. And yet in heaven, we get what we cannot obtain. We get perfection. We get perfection. So the challenge, I suppose, as we come towards the table, are you bored by Jesus or are you bored by Esau? You will be bored by something. Are you bored by Jesus and his word or are you bored by Esau and his word? You're going to be bored. Make sure you're bored by the right things. Make sure you're bored by the things of earth, that you're discontent, that you long for the things of heaven, things of Christ. May that be our story. May we plot ourselves, not in the story of Esau, but in Jacob's, God's grand redemptive story. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we come to a table where you present us with the story of salvation. You present us with the story of Jesus Christ. You give us his body broken, his blood shed. You put us into his narrative, not as the main stars, but as the bit actors. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to tell everybody about our history and who we're related to and our kids and our grandkids and our legacies and how wonderful we are and how wonderful they are. But Lord, we can have none of that or all of that and yet say we belong to you. We're in your story. We're in your family. We're your children and grandchildren. And Father, we ask that you would set aside these ordinary elements, these basic things that people think are so boring, bread and wine, what's that? And yet, Lord, we ask you to set them apart, that by your grace we may receive Jesus Christ. Not a different Jesus, not a magical Jesus, but the same Jesus by faith. And I pray you would work this story into our bloodstream, that we might speak of it to all we meet. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.